honey, wait just a minute. What are you trying... Just stay right over there. That's your line. You can't come over here without a passport. Oh, for goodness sakes. Look out, uh, uh, uh. That's on the line. I just want a cigarette. Well, half of what's in this pack is mine. You mean that's the only cigarette we have in the house? Yep. You get Philip and I get Morris. <laughs> I just wanted to let you know about my study group. Oh, don't be a fuddy-duddy. I'll be your study buddy. I'm about to embark on one of the great challenges of my scientific career. This work right here is going to change history. I think this is going to be our greatest mission. I don't have time to study. I'll never get into Stanford. I got big plans for you tonight. I got maps. I got charts. I'm going to see you through this because my credibility is on the line. It's at this point that you'll want to start taking notes. Welcome to the Sitcom Study, the podcast where we contemplate the TV shows we grew up with and search for the truth and wisdom within the tropes and cliches. Amy, what TV trope are we talking about today? I'm not speaking to you because this week we are doing Divide the Room in Half, and this half is mine, and the microphone is on my side, and I don't have anything more to say to you. Uh, yeah. That's right. We're doing Divide the Room in Half episodes. Uh, we're talking all about bitter conflicts between cohabitants. <laughs> we are cohabitants. Let's just get right to my first question I was going to ask to you. Uh, have you ever had bitter strife with a roommate that forced you to take some sort of bifurcating action? in the room. I don't think so. I definitely have had conflict with a roommate, but I don't know that I ever drew a line down the center or any part of the building. What about you? You've had many roommates over well, the years. Yeah, I've had a lot of roommates. Uh, I was thinking back to my various experiences in college. There was an issue with a, a roommate who liked to pleasure himself in the room. That was actually, uh, that was a sweet mate, not a roommate per se, but a roommate of my friend. I've had a lot of roommates over the years, but frankly... Did you just blow right by the fact that you had a roommate who used to jack off in the common area? No, it was in his room, but while his his roommate, our sweet mate, was there. And... Uh, and no amount of hanging blankets or drawing white no, tape lines were, on the floor would help that. There were no lines drawn. It culminated in an episode in which we were all in our respective rooms working on uh, homework and such. And we heard our friend yell, Scott, stop jerking off in the room while I'm right here. And then storm out of the room, clomp, clomp, clomp you know, walk down the hallway and bust into my room, sit down on the bed and start smoking a cigarette. And the explanation we later got, or he later got from Scott, his roommate, the offending uh, person Jacker. was, uh, I thought you were doing it too. So uh, classic miscommunication, but bringing it back to our lives, I think that, frankly, uh, you were joking when you started the podcast, but I think our current situation is the closest I've ever come to this. Because even though I feel like the message we're going to glean from a lot of these episodes is that dividing the space is not necessarily a great resolution, I think in the case of our bedroom, 
it works pretty well. <laughs> We've each got our separate sides, and I'm sort of blissfully unaware of the, uh, I'll use the word dumpster fire, that is uh, your side of the room. Sure. If we were to be our own television show, we would be the odd couple and I would be Oscar. Sure. Or in this case, we would be uh, I Love Lucy and I would be Lucy. So, okay, enough about us. Like we said, we're talking about the TV trope of roommates dividing the room in half to work out their differences. What are the episodes we're talking about? So there are a lot of them out there. Oftentimes this trope is just sort of a second or third storyline in a bunch of storylines. But we tried to search out ones where this was the main plot for the episode. So we have I Love Lucy, Men Are Messy, season one, episode episode eight. We have The Adams Family, season two, episode 17, Morticia and Gomez versus Fester and Grandmama. We have The Munsters, get to do a little comparison between Adams Family and The Munsters. That's season two, episode 29, A House Divided. And finally, we'll end it with Hey Dude, season two, episode four, Bunkmate Battle. All right. So this is our first primarily black and white lineup. And I want to say up front, not because of the black and white thing, but I think we're going to have some really good comedy and um, you know, substance to talk about up front. And then quality-wise, we're going to experience a little bit of a nosedive. Uh, I'm going to go out on a limb and say this was not our strongest lineup in you terms think that. of... See, that's interesting. I really enjoyed the feel of these. Like, First of all, I love Lucy is gorgeous. Like it is so well done. The snappy dialogue. I mean, Lucy is hilarious. And, you know, Desi Arnaz knew exactly who he was playing opposite against. No Did a great job. On that one. And the Adams family, I thought was really good too. I was surprised at the giant gulf between acting in the Adams family versus the Munsters. Because in my mind, they sort of were a lot more similar. And yeah, the Munsters is for children, I think, and maybe the Adams family, even though they were all, I mean, they were on TV around the same time. But the Munsters was very silly, like for little kids, silly. And then Hey Dude is. It was on Nickelodeon. It was for little kids. Yeah, exactly. So let's get into it. Starting with I Love Lucy, right? Men are messy. Thoughts on I Love Lucy in general? Are you uh, are you a Lucy head? I am not. I it's one a of those sites. Maybe oh. I bet that's what they're they're called. Lucite. We're a loose. We're loose sites. Yeah. Sorry. Continue. <laughs> I like the the highlights, the clips as as much as the next gal. I think um, you know she's a redhead. I'm a redhead. That's always I've always you know kind of felt that sort of camaraderie there. But no, it was this was. Probably one of the only I Love Lucy episodes I think I've ever watched all the way through. I know I've definitely seen clips and stuff, but I don't know that I've ever watched a whole episode. I've seen, you know, the Ricardos, the Adams, or the, the Aaron Sorkin movie, sure. and the, um, you know, and some other, you know, documentaries about their life or whatever. Mm -hmm. But no, I don't, I'm not, I couldn't, couldn't say that I'm a, a Lucite. Yeah, no, I was in the same boat, and uh, this was great. You really see how this this kind of thing, I think, similar to the Sanford and Son that we watched, you see the sort of early days of these situation comedies and the way they could build a show around someone's personality. And uh, in this case, 
you know, really sort of give everyday couples just sort of like a couple who's a little bit dialed up and crazy, but who have these problems that are very sort of relatable. And uh, you, you really sort of see how this would be therapeutic for people to watch. Like the the sort of conflicts that they go through are just so sort of typical, but they're they're just so sort of fun. And I don't know, like to me, I just saw this and was like, oh, I totally get how this sort of laid the blueprint for so many of these shows where you just sort of sit back and turn on the TV and see your own family's foibles, you know, just sort of amped up a little bit in a fun way. Right. Yeah. So episode opens, Lucy's dusting, kind of cleaning up the house, Ethel calls, and she she says, Lucy's like, oh, I don't know what we're doing tonight. Ricky will be home in, in a few minutes and we'll figure it out. So I'll call you back. And then she finishes cleaning, goes into the other room. Ricky comes home and proceeds to drop, you know, every, like he takes off his coat. He takes off his tie. He takes off his vest. He takes off a shoe. He takes off another shoe. He dro drops his mail. He is looking for his letter opener and digs yeah, through the desk all... and pulls all this stuff out. I mean, within moments, the room that she just finished cleaning is now trashed yeah and you you the the show makes a silent sort of point of both of these things like there's a whole sort of silent 30 second 45 second bit of lucy going around and tidying up the apartment before she leaves and then she's off camera desi comes in and same thing like you see like you said point by point him messing up everything that she's done he's he's like part of his daily routine is like finding some document at the bottom of a drawer in his little like ledger thing so he has to sit down at this little writing desk and take out like twenty seven thousand pieces of paper it's it's very i think it's it's not even like funny it's not like this raucous thing where the studio audience is dying laughing it's just this sort of charming little bit of business that you get to see play out right he goes over to he moves uh, like multiple tape you know like table arrangements or flower arrangements he moves those things around there's a bowl of fruit and nuts that's sitting next to their fireplace yes. he goes and he gets some walnuts and then stomps on them on the fireplace hearth in order to break the walnuts open and have a little snack so there's like uh nut uh pieces everywhere yeah. he eats a banana and throws the peel across the room i mean it is it is silliness and then she comes in and makes uh a comment about the you know a, a cyclone, cyclone yeah a cyclone came through yeah so you and get he's like it looks lived in yeah, well, that's it. So his argument is, this is an apartment that looks lived in. He says, uh, you can't expect me to live in a museum. And what I kind of felt was, even though we've got some obvious dated gender roles, right? And it's sort of understood that the reason why Lucy cares so much about the house being tidy is because she's at home cleaning up all the time. And the reason why uh, Ricky doesn't give a shit is because he has this exciting life outside. And what the hell does he care if his living room is messy, you know? But despite those sort of dated gender roles, they do really kind of pay respect to each side of this and it's very reasonable i feel like on both sides where he's like look it's you know like well, who am i trying to impress this is my living room like if i want to relax here and be messy why shouldn't i you know and so it does give both sides its due sort of credibility you know 
So they have this very standard sort of down the middle conflict. You know, it could be married couple. It could be roommates. One's messy. One's clean. You know, simple as that. And so she goes right to that solution. I'm going to divide the room. Now we're going to have all kinds of different methods for the physical dividing of the room here. The first one we get in I Love Lucy is tape, right? Or a string. Yeah, it's some sort of, it looks like a a tape, like a tape measure or like a seamstress measuring tape because it's that kind of thing. It is a white stripe that they've put down the middle of the room, but they can lift it up and go under it. They can kind of move it from side to side and it's not sticky. So that's different from others that we're going to see, which are painted stripes or actual taped stripes. Yeah. And so we get our first of many and maybe the first ever example of this solution of like, well, all we have to do is physically divide the space in half, and then we can each have our own separate lifestyles. They've got the room divided down the middle, and we don't get long of them happily going about their business. They're sort of just arguing. And then the phone rings, Yes, and Lucy picks up the phone, and Ethel and Fred are going to come over to visit. So over they come, and, and then they see what's going on. And so pretty quickly, Fred's like, oh, yeah, this is this is exactly the life. You're right. I should be comfortable. We should be comfortable in our own homes. He ducks under the tape and goes over onto the man's side, kicks off his shoes, cracks some nuts, and throws banana peels on the floor, because that's what you do. Yeah, we've got a classic battle of the sexes uh, scenario. And of course, uh, the show has lots of fun with all of the little inanities that happen when you try to divide the room in half. So we have cigarettes split down. They have to split one cigarette in half. They split right? one cigarette in half. And this was their one shout out to their sponsor, Philip Morris. You got Philip, you get, and I get Morris because they right. had to break the uh, the cigarette in half. Right. Classic tobacco humor. But the <laughs> the bit of the phone call, not the phone call from the neighbors, yes, but the, the later, later phone, phone call, call from uh, Ricky's agent is inspired. And this is the difference between this show and some of the other stuff that we're going to talk about. So they have uh, somehow the, the receiver of the phone is, is in the middle, in the middle. So Lucy is holding the phone so that she can talk into it and Ricky can hear what the person is saying. And that's it. The rest writes itself. Like it's just a really fun premise for this funny scene where Ricky gets to hear what his agent's saying. He has to repeat it out loud and then say something to Lucy for her to say into the receiver so that the guy can hear her speaking on behalf of Ricky. And it's very funny. Yeah, it's great. So yeah, Ricky is sort of responding out loud and then Lucy's repeating what he says. But of course, Ricky, Desi Arnaz, is Cuban and has this very like thick Cuban accent. And Lucy is doing her best Desi when she like repeats some of these things into the phone and also giving him all of the eyes and you know giving him hell as she's doing it so yeah it's it's a wonderful little scene and so that's basically our sort of act one and then we get a uh what would you say like 47 minute musical interlude uh (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so there's so um we you know the other like ins and outs the other inanities of this dividing the room in half are that the kitchen's on one on Lucy's side and so that means no food for the boys and the bathroom is on on Ricky's side so he's giving her house saying like you, you know you can't go in there to do whatever it is that you do and at the end of that 
that scene, she is, she says to Ethel, well, I guess I'll just be a brunette because that's, you know, she's red hair. She obviously she dyes it. And that was the joke. So then the next day we find out that she has traded him bathroom privileges for kitchen privileges. So that's how he was able to get out because both the front and back door are on Lucy's side of the apartment. So he gets out, he's at his show or his rehearsal, his his club. And is singing and dancing with one of the women who cleans and yeah. is is joking with her and saying, oh, you're my biggest critic. And she was like, oh, I just want to watch. And then he pulls her up on stage and does a whole little dance with her. Yeah. And so this guy comes from the magazine and uh, tells Ricky, we, we're going to do a piece about you. I want- Yeah, his press agent brings the guy and is mm-hmm. like, yep, it's time. They're going to, you know, we know you said you were going to get it last time. So, but no, you're going to, this month you, you're in it. Right. So Ricky makes the same mistake that Martin did in the Martin episode. He has the hubris to start bragging about how great his wife is uh, in all of these sort of creepy traditional ways and how she's the perfect housekeeper and she keeps everything so tidy. Well, because he says, hey, let me call the wife and give her a heads up. And the photographer is like, oh, ha ha, I gotta, you know, give her a little bit of a head start. Ha, ha, ha. Yeah. And he was like, absolutely not that. Like, she keeps the house so perfect. You know, you're going to be so amazed or whatever. So, of course, he calls Lucy, who is still at home with the tape down the middle and half of her house a total mess yes and she's like he wants me to clean everything up when it suits him but not when it suits me well i'm gonna give him a taste of his own medicine because that's a totally normal response yeah yeah (laughs) we're gonna get uh i would say as much as i sympathize with Lucy's frustration of living with a messy person. I don't uh, know why you would sympathize with Lucy. We are going to get a huge retaliation here. It's brilliant. Now, uh, I would say the other thing going into this is that she makes, I guess she makes an assumption that is very meaningful to her, a a very meaningful distinction that she assumes this is for Half beat? Is that what what it was called? Something like yeah, it's a, some kind of musician magazine, right? Where it's not a big deal for him to be in that only musicians read. So it's a big deal for him because people in his circles will read about it, but not a big deal for her. So she doesn't care. She's like, oh, I'm gonna make him, you know, eat crow. And then cut to they come in the door, and there is laundry hung all around the apartment. Yes. There's there are trash cans and stuff falling out of the trash cans. Yeah, it looks like a Hooverville sort of like yeah. shanty town, like garbage everywhere. Yeah. Uh, yeah, this is, you know, this is Ricky and the photographer or the journalist or whatever from the magazine. And yeah, just like Martin, he's going to get the comeuppance of when you brag about your wife and how clean or hot she is, she is going to turn herself into a grotesque nightmare. And, uh, you know, you're going to learn your lesson. How dare you? Martin turned Gina into that grotesque nightmare. But anyway, so Lucy comes out of their bedroom in a wig that looks like it's um, Moe's from Dwight Schrute's Beat Farm. Sure. I said Chucky from Child's Play. The whole game. Also that. Then she's wearing overalls mm-hmm. and a flannel shirt, and the overalls are at least nine sizes too big. Yeah, if you're familiar with Cletus, the slack-jawed yokel from The Simpsons, it's kind of that look. 
So she's going all out, you know, scratching herself and itching her belly and is making all these jokes about, oh, yeah, let me just find it for you and pulling face to the camera. Yeah. I mean, it it is truly nightmarish. Like she's got all kinds of weird makeup and just like doing this crazy character. But the thing I was thinking was like, I don't know, this would be kind of cool for like a, a piece about a musician. If they were like, if you read about like Jack White's apartment or something and it was like, yeah, he keeps this Upper East Side apartment as though it were like some sort of shanty town, you know, like that would actually just sort of build your mystique, maybe. I don't know uh, about that because those same kinds of things came out about Elon Musk and everyone was like, yeah, he's horrible. But look, it was hilarious, right? Like all of the things that you love Lucille Ball for were happening in this bit. She's over the top. She's making a fool of herself. She's just pulling faces. It's wonderful. She goes over to the hung laundry at one point and Ethel is hung on the line in a big dress and she's like... Grandma, what you doing here? Well, I guess we should go wrestle up some dinner. Come on, let's go hunting. And they grab a gun and she unhooks her from the clothesline and they go off into the bedroom to go hunting. And a few minutes later, a few seconds later, we hear the gun bang and out they come carrying a giant dead but stuffed bear. Yeah. That was when I took the note, uh, what was the production budget for Lucy's prank? Uh, because it seemed like she invested easily three or $4,000 in this, you know, to get some kind of rig where you can have a person suspended in laundry and be undetected for like a five minute conversation, a life-size fake bear, a gun. Uh, yeah, it These is are ab- all things you just have around the house. And this is all for the purpose of basically saying to her husband, see, this is what happens when you're messy. This is what life is like when you're messy. So she's posing for all sorts of photos for the photographer. The photographer just can't get enough of this. He is of your mindset, Jay, that like, this is hilarious. Oh, I'm going to take all these pictures. So he is. And she poses once again with her leg up on the bear, her, you know, her foot up on the bear, like the conquering hero. Then he says, thank you. And as he's walking out the door, he lets everybody know that it'll be the next episode of Look magazine. And Lucy is crushed because uh, to her, it is a big deal to be on Look magazine. Right. Because this Um, is a magazine people in her circles read. So they're going to see her all dolled up in this crazy costume acting and and her very messy apartment, which is mortifying and all this stuff. And uh, Ricky's like, who reads Look Magazine anyway? Yeah, well, and it's funny. I was just thinking how times have changed. It's like in these days, if some picture of you comes out in a magazine that isn't read by your circles, then it doesn't matter. You know, it's not like now where it's just like, if it's out there, it's out there and everyone you know is going to see it. But yeah, so really what you take from this dividing the room thing on I Love Lucy is A, the impracticalities of it, right? All the silliness of how nothing works when you divide the room in half, right? You can't just bifurcate a cigarette or a telephone and expect to live your life functionally. Uh, Also, you have, you know, important things like entrances and exits and bathrooms and kitchens and whatnot to contend with. But then it seems like the overarching message is more about 
Lucy being undone by her sort of overreaction and grandiose, you know, revenge, right? She decided to go all crazy with inventing this like Riverside tramp character <laughs> that she was going to be for the photographer and make a fool out of Ricky. And then she made a fool out of herself. And that's the note that it all kind of ends on. Right. Cause the profile in the magazine, they had promised not to use any pictures of her in the article. That was the promise, right? So she made the cover. Uh-huh. And that was like, so that's the turnabout. I think, look, it as a comedic device, it's funny. I don't know that we necessarily learned any lessons from that because let's be honest, Lucy was right in the first place that he was being a total slob. And then she was wrong when she tried to like overreact in her rightness. Yeah. So maybe the moral is just like, take a chill pill. <laughs> like, don't. Or, you know what? Go double down and dress up like a, a street tramp from the 1930s and um and hang laundry in your apartment yeah just understand you have to commit you know if you show up if you do that you might show up on the front page of a magazine and you have to be okay with it you gotta be okay with it let's move on to the adams family all right so we've got a, a little bit of a double header here in that we're watching the adams family episode of dividing the room in half or dividing the house in half and we're gonna watch the monsters episode which was also dividing the house in half. The shows are parallel. Their origin stories are very similar. And they aired in this like the same two-year time frame. They only had two seasons each. And they both had this exact same storyline within the same calendar year. The um, Adams Family episode aired in January of 1966. And the Munsters episode aired in April of 1966. So both of these shows are before our time, obviously. Um, but we did grow up with the uh, very popular 90s Adams Family movies. So my understanding is these two projects sort of like predate each other. Because obviously the Munsters go back to Dracula and Frankenstein and all that. The Adams Family comes from these Charles Adams cartoons, but they weren't like a comic strip about a family with this regular cast of characters in a story. It was almost like a sort of macabre version of the far side where you had a lot of these single panel comics with these weird, morbid characters. And there was a funny looking bald guy that we would come to know as Fester. And there was a weird, creepy little girl that we would come to know as Wednesday. But it was a very sort of abstract idea. Yeah. And so that was something that whatever studio did, the Adams Family, when they heard the mon- the monsters was going to be a thing, they were like, quick, what do we own? What can we do? Mm-hmm. And rushed it into production because they debuted, these pilots debuted two weeks apart from each other. But the monsters had kind of been an idea that had been tr- like – skipping around Hollywood since the 1940s. This Looney Tunes animator, Bob Clampett, had an idea for a TV family show called The Monster Family. And Universal Studios, I guess, like never got back to him. And then much later, the creators of the actual Monsters, the show that we saw, they pitched their idea to Universal and they stole it. Um, they passed along the idea. The people at Universal's passed along um, Alan Burns and Chris Hayward's idea 
without including them like in the pitch. And so the Writers Guild had to step in and make sure that they got to be, you know, credited. And I think it says like a format by. Well, so at that point, then Universal owned the idea, but they wanted to make sure that they could include monsters that they already owned. So they changed it. And instead of it being whatever you know, the original guys had pitched it as it was going to be Frankenstein and Dracula. So it was Universal Monsters. Got it. Yeah. It was all sorts of like secret back talking happening between people who were working on these two projects who were supposed to be keeping it quiet. And there was all these leaks going back and forth. And um, yeah, that that caused them to be the basically the, like very similar to the same show, but then not at all. Like when you're watching them, the only thing that's same samey about them is that they're sort of monstery? Yeah, I, I agree that they're very different, mostly because the people are different, the actors, and that means everything in terms of the energy and the sort of uh, character of it. But there are certain things they have in common, like they both use dopey music to set a certain comedic tone and certain things that are just signs of the time that can't be helped, like the fact that they're both inside these houses in the black and white era and stuff where it's like you know that's that's just because of when they were but nonetheless it it makes them feel similar when you watch them now yes it does make them feel similar but there is and i think part of it is just because there's been so much more adams stuff in like our lifetimes than there has been the monsters necessarily that i think there's like when you see like morticia and gomez are iconic and the ways that they interact and when they have their little kissy kissy stuff and when they're you know they're very amorous with each other all of that is like is super different for a 1960s TV show. And also, like I said, it's iconic. So it, it just has this thing. Whereas like when you're watching the Munsters, yeah, okay, you know, Fred Gwynn, he's he's funny. He's got the kind of face thing that he's doing. And that and that's funny. But their grandpa and the other characters, you just don't kind of have a I I don't know. I don't feel the same like connection to them as I did with the the main characters in the Adams. Now, that being said, I think Eddie is a much more interesting character in the Munsters than either um, Pugsley or Wednesday are because Pugsley and Wednesday in this original TV run are kind of just you know, like all 1960s kids, like seen and not heard, you know, they're sort of running around, but you don't really, they don't have anything to say. Yeah, that's funny. I found Eddie annoying. <laughs> um, I thought he was typical of that. Uh, he just had that like leave it to beaver vibe to me. Leave, just... it, leave it to beaver wolfman vibe. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, he also kind of was that whole, the whole episode with the monsters is that they're getting ready for Eddie's birthday yeah. and, and so he was like, hey, it's two days until my birthday. I bet that's what they're working on in the garage. You know, so it, it, he had that the kid arc of just all he talks about it is, is his birthday. And all the adults are like, OK, hon, go to school. Yeah. But even beyond that, just something about the way he would scurry around and just talk really loudly. I don't know. He he had a certain wholesomeness that at least Wednesday and Pugsley, maybe not as much as in the later versions, but they still 
try to give them a little bit of that subversive edge in the old show. I don't know. Let's let's get into the Adams family story. Yes. It's a weird one. So in all these stories, we have to establish the conflict fast, right? So we've got basically a 22-minute episode. So in this case, the conflict is that Gomez and Morticia don't trust Fester and the grandma to watch the kids. Right. So everybody's stuck inside in the Adams household because it's sunny and blue skies. And they're all grouchy about that. And they're tired and bored of doing all their inside games. And so we get a couple of scenes where Fester and grandmama are finding more fun things to do with the kids since they're stuck inside and it's been going on for a week or two weeks or whatever. And Gomez and Morticia have a conversation about how they feel like Fester and Grandmama are spoiling the kids because Grandmama's taking them outside to watch her wrestle the alligator a couple times a day or wrestle the crocodile a couple times a day. And that is spoiling them because it's so much fun and they should, you know, they should, they should only get it once a day instead of twice. And then Fester comes home and he's got this whole box of brand new dynamite and he's so excited and he wants to share it with the kids. And Gomez is like, hey, you know, when I was a kid, it took me months and months to save up for just one stick of dynamite. Maybe let's not give them this whole box. Maybe that's, you know, let's just think about this. We don't want to spoil them. And both Grandmama and Fester are like, you know, you guys are ridiculous. That's what the kids are for. That's why we're here. Like, we're, we take care of them. We love them. This is fun. Let's let's have some fun with the kids. Yeah. And so it's kind of like, you know, they're doing their little Adams family spin on it, but it is a very standard, relatable issue. Um, well, and nobody's mad yet at this point, right? Like they've sure. been told by Gomez and Morticia that you're spoiling the kids, but they're not angry about it. There was oh. no, it wasn't until Gomez and Morticia realized that a hurricane is coming to hit Florida, Hurricane Jaja, yes. uh, as in Jaja Gabor, because mm-hmm. apparently she was embroiled in all sorts of um, wild, debaucherous things in the media at that time. So that was a fun little play on that. So Hurricane Jaja is coming to Florida and they want to have a second honeymoon and go to the Last Chance Motel in Florida, which I think I've been to, and <laughs> and and ride out this hurricane. And so they decide instead of letting grandmama and fester who are going to spoil the kids babysit they're going to hire a governess yeah and that's what pisses off grandmama and fester they're like oh they don't trust us all we ever do is take care of these kids we love these kids oh oh that's it and so then they decide that's it we're dividing the house in half because They're put off for one more day because the governess they hired won't show up until the next day. So they have to live a day in a house split in half. Yeah. And this time we use like the thing that you use on a soccer field to draw the lines, like one of those sort of rolly paint chalk things. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, they go right down the staircase. They go down Lurch uh, for a sort of sight gag. Uh, They have... We're going to have multiple instances of of dining in a house divided. Correct. In this one, we get just a bifurcated dining room, but Lurch himself is divided, as is the staircase. Right. So we have the dining room is split in two, and there's two separate tables. Then the next morning at breakfast, 
I think they're in the breakfast room or like the eating kitchen or something. And there's another table there where there's just a line over the center. So they've drawn a line over the center. So we get two meals in the Adams family and two different types of table settings. Yeah. Well, at breakfast, we also get this ongoing gag of the newspaper, right? Because the newspaper has been bifurcated. From there, the dividing the house thing sort of goes away, right? Because they move out. Yeah, um, well, they don't move out. So Morticia and Gomez go on their second honeymoon. They yeah. they leave. And then there's this, um, when the governess arrives, you see her set down her like Mary Poppins style carpet bag yes. next to an identical Mary Poppins style carpet bag. So you know that that's going to pay off later, right. that obviously their luggage is going to get swapped out with Mrs. or the governess Thud's mm-hmm. luggage. And, you know, something's going to happen later on, but we don't know what that is. So, yeah. So the dividing the room in half, that kind of ends, but the fight doesn't end. They say, you know, we're not going to stay here and be second class citizens in our own home. We're going to leave too. We're going to go out and get jobs and we're just not going to be around anymore when you get back because we only live here because we love to help out. We could do whatever we want. And they're like, you can't yeah. go anywhere. You don't have any money. And they're like, oh, yeah. Yeah, we're getting jobs. So off the grandmama and Uncle Fester go to get jobs. Morticia and Gomez go to their honey go to their second honeymoon in Florida. The we get some wonderful like stock footage of palm trees bending yeah. in the in the wind. And they are confident in the governess because she seems at first blush to be weird and sort of humorless in a way that they like right, right? she's, she's not like hard sunny. Ass. yeah she's not warm she's sort of dour and mean and they like that because that's their deal they like everything the opposite right they like you know corporal punishment and that's the best you know that's going to be so much fun for the kids if she is you know spanking them all the time and whatever that's going to be great so off they go and then gomez goes into the room to change into his more comfortable thing because they're going to get it on and she opens her suitcase and freaks out because it's not her suitcase case and she sees things and she says Gomez Gomez get in here and in he comes and we see or she tells us in the suitcase that we see you know sugar dates and there was like a book books mother goose oh mother goose nursery rhymes she's kind yeah there's stuff that is appropriate for a governess or a babysitter to have and that freaks her out because she doesn't want stuff and I just I want to pause on this for a minute because I was just thinking about the whole concept of the Adams family and how it's sort of like this mad magazine version of I Love Lucy and these other sitcoms, you know, where if you had sort of generation one was these shows where it's like we were saying, it's like, hey, all you married people and you families and stuff, you know, let, let's have you tune in to TV and see, you know, a slightly exaggerated, but still very sort of grounded uh, version of yourselves. And then, like you said, the Munsters kind of has that universal Monsters thing going on. The Adams family is more about like, let's have a family that's different in all of these ways that actually sort of helps us get on the same page about what is normal, you know? And it made me think about how when you're with little kids and you go like, so everyone, we're going to put our socks on our hands, right? And everyone goes, no, that's silly. You put them on your feet and all that stuff like that. And that's how you teach kids 
what is right, you know, or what is normal. By being ridiculously wrong. Yeah, exactly. The silliness and the opposites and everything. Right. And so it just sort of struck me that that's almost like the overarching sort of concept behind this show is just in all these silly ways, we can have families sort of feel normal by seeing these sort of fun, harmless subversions or antitheses right. of, uh, of of what we know to be normal. Right. So like instead of your dad playing polo, uh, you know, as I guess rich people do out on the lawn, we have Gomez playing polo on a uh, merry-go-round horse in the living room and knocking the ball around the house. Right. Or you get a plot point like this that shows you, yeah, we're all on the same page about what is appropriate stuff to raise children because Morticia's freaked out about it. So we as an audience know anything that she doesn't like, that means we're on the same page that that stuff is good. That, that stuff is and good. I will also say there's an interesting joke where Gomez says something about his ancestors sold guns to the Indians. And that's, first of all, we're going to have a whole other Native American thing going on in another episode. So that was just a funny coincidence. But that shows you how, in a way that maybe doesn't age particularly well, we're all getting on the same page as a society about that, right? That we are (laughs) pro-settlers, anti-Native Americans. Right. They were the like opposite day family were the ones that were supplying weapons to Native Americans when that was like, you know, not the thing that people of the genocide against them. I mean, this is 15 years after I Love Lucy, mm-hmm. uh, 15 years after the episode we watched, sure. which, you know, I Love Lucy ran for many seasons. So, you know, this is like, uh, it is, though. It's like 15 years later, there's probably been tons of sitcoms in between now and then showing the nuclear family, dealing with every one of these situations in every fathomable way. And now we get one where we can have these same situations, but look at them through a funhouse mirror. And I wasn't around at the time, but it makes for fun TV watching now. Definitely. And uh, in terms of the way the story resolves, it's another version of the story that we're going to see, I think, in some of the other episodes where it's more about the relationships and it's more about just realizing uh, your family is your family, your friends are your friends, and uh, you have to accept them for who they are. And so the fact that they discover that this governess is some kind of normie who carries around, you know, kids books to read to kids and uh, they're relieved to discover that Fester and Grandmama came home and fired her. And, you know, they're like, yeah, we may not see eye to eye and maybe you give the kids more dynamite than we would, but we're all, you know, of a certain ilk and uh, we love each other. And we so love each let's other. Live together. Well, and who hasn't had that issue of, oh my gosh, you know, honey, your parents, they're spoiling the kids. This yeah. is like we need to talk to your mom. You know what I mean? Like I think that's a that's a normal uh <laughs> that's a normal trope that that I'm sure many families have gone through. Yeah. I, I just want to sort of bookmark before we go into the monsters how the charisma of Gomez and Morticia is everything because However much these jokes and gags are kind of dumb and don't really age well or how the goofy music and the lame laugh track might be annoying, they're just so fun and engaged. And the humor never takes the angle of them 
conflicting with each other you know they're always just totally like on the same wavelength and that just makes it so refreshing that part of it ages very well yeah Um, they have a sort of relationship that i would say is an awful lot like um steve steven and elise keaton Keaton. yeah from family ties Mm -hmm. they just they're all like kind of always on the same page with each other and even when some things are a little what you know they still they still have you know flirtation and they are you know very uh, affectionate with one another in terms of like touching and and everything kind of leads into a little bit of like oh hey oh that's nice why don't we take that upstairs kind of a thing although morticia can't go up the stairs did you her dress right so she's got this costume that and this is like, you know, that's her walk. That's the yeah. iconic in this little like shuffle walk mm-hmm. that she does because she has that costume that's like a mermaid kind of thing. And then it, it webs out on the floor yeah. into a little like spider webby kind of thing. But so she shuffles across the floor and there was one scene where Gomez like walked to the stairs and she shuffled over to him and they were talking about going up the stairs. And I was like, she can't go up those stairs. She can't even lift up her leg. And she did. She tried. She put like a toe on the bottom step and then they zoomed the camera in and they finished the scene right there because you can't go up the stairs she'd have to hop yeah no or she would have like a special dumb waiter or something <laughs> okay let's move on to the monsters a house divided this is um season two episode 29 and um as we said before it's just a few months after the adams family episode with the same plot so, you know, these were kind of running contemporaneously. And um, this one, we have Grandpa and Herman, who are endeavoring to build a go-kart birthday present for Eddie, because it's his birthday on Saturday. And they are out in the garage, and they've booby-trapped the garage, so Eddie can't come peeking. And first shot we we see of them in the garage doing their thing, Grandpa's doing all the work, and Herman's walking around with a mallet and and a beer bottle and is just sort of banging one on the other looking very confused and bored. Yeah, I have to say, I really liked Fred Gwynn in the 90s as the character actor he was in, you know, the the judge in My Cousin Vinny. He's the neighbor in Pet Cemetery. I always loved him as that sort of, you know, he has has that larger than life look and that distinctive voice and everything. I find him kind of insufferable as Herman Munster. Like, just the whole shtick is just a little annoying, I think. And I just don't get it, you know? Like, he he just is so sort of dopey. And I don't know. The whole, the whole thing, I, I guess that was the reason why I made a point to sort of lay praise on John Astin and the Adams Family acting was because, by contrast, the charisma of the the especially like the central couple you know of herman and lily and the monsters is not really there no and i honestly i think that's more to do with the mom and not you know the woman who plays the mom is just sort of flat like there's not like she doesn't have a lot to do in this episode number one so there isn't much to give her and she and marilyn the i guess she's a cousin um she's like the one who's not a monster Mm -hmm. and uh they are they're the ones that do 
the Ethel and Lucy thing of trying to give Grandpa and Herman their comeuppance because Grandpa and Herman get into the argument that divides the house. And then the women and Eddie are just having to live in this house where these two men are fighting and it's a problem. And so she doesn't really have a lot to do in this episode, but yeah, she's very flat. There isn't a lot going on with her. And then Herman, by contrast, it's these fate, he's pulling faces and doing the, you know, laugh and stuff. And, and it's like of its own little time. If you read later articles that Fred Gwynn gave, you know, later interviews that Fred Gwynn gave, he, would say it was such a bummer that this role typecast him. He was really unable to work for many years after this show because everyone was like, this is who you are. And then he, you know, ended up only making a comeback by being cast in roles that people like Boris Karloff had played previously and then was able to, like you said, had more of a resurgence later on, but he's a Harvard trained actor. I mean, he is one of these like national lampoon, hasty pudding kind of original yeah. dudes. And you can totally see how from his point of view, it's like nice work. If you can get it, you know, you're not going to turn down this, you know, fun role on this goofy sitcom, but yeah, I think his talents are kind of wasted and yeah, the whole vibe of the show just isn't as charming in my opinion, but the conflict in this is weird because at the start, the conflict is Lily against Herman and grandpa. Cause they're being all weird in the shed or whatever. And she goes to talk to them and they trap her on this hook thing. This is going to be a recurring thing in this episode. They really underestimate the difficulty of attaching somebody on a hook by like the back of their pants or something and just lifting them up unbeknownst to them. Well, so like they've booby trapped the garage. So Eddie won't come looking right. They don't, and they catch him first. He says, you know, he goes into the kitchen and mom and Marilyn are in there and he's like, Oh, I'm going to see if I can go get a peek. And then he goes outside and he's like, Oh, dad left his wire clippers, you know? All right. And he's like, he clips through the lower rung of the barbed wire and crawls under and then gets right up to the door and is trying to stand on some rocks or sandbags looking in the window and then jumps down and f- falls through because there's a trap door. And then later on, they haven't come in all day. They've been only doing that and nothing else. And she's like, hey, are you know, you guys, you need to take a break. You need like, come on in. Let's, you know, eat something. You're just out there banging around. Like you'll get a chance to finish it. It'll be fine. And this is the mom. Lily goes out. Same thing. Only she gets caught in a different one of the booby traps. Yeah. This hook. And they're messing with her. Like she's, she's yelling and screaming and kicking and saying, get me down, get me down. And grandpa and Herman are like, do you think we should take her down? Uh, What do you think? Let's flip a coin, right? They flip a coin. So you've got this dynamic of they're on the same team messing with her, but that only lasts as long as it takes to get her down. And then I guess they want to test drive their go-kart that they're making or their, their plane car that they're making. So it started as a go-kart and they go and they finish it. Grandpa doesn't want to test drive it. Right. But before we get to that, 
when Lily, the mom, is breaking through the barbed wire, she is not as little as Eddie, so she doesn't crawl under the bottom one. She cuts the top, too, and now it's all open and she's able to just walk through. But this is the first of many appearances that we see of the very long pair of scissors. So we'll see those very long pair of scissors as the comedy of the house divided ensues. So Grandpa and Herman have now finished the go-kart and they have it out and they're, you know, it's out of the garage. It's sitting out front. So excited. Grandpa's like, great, let's wrap it up. Like we want to put a bow on it. What are we going to do? So, you know, where are we going to hide it so that, um, you know, Eddie won't see it? And Herman's like, no, we have to test it out. And Grandpa's like, absolutely not. I know it's perfect. I'm the one that built it. All you did was bang around and act like an idiot. No, we're not testing it. It's fine. I don't want to mess it up before the kid gets to actually play with his birthday present. And Herman's like, apsh, and sits down on the go-kart. And then we get this sped up footage of him riding all around the little cul-de-sac that they live in and hitting fire hydrants and spraying the neighbor ladies with water and knocking over garbage cans and uh sorry i want to pause on that for a second because i'm wondering what the deal was with this being shot in front of a live audience or not or like is this all canned laughter or anything because i just remember talking about happy days and how you really got the sense you could feel the presence of that studio audience and you could really feel them reacting organically to every little gag and you know all the the funny physical comedy that was happening with Richie climbing through the window and everything and by contrast when you watch these ones especially the monsters it just really sounds like the canned laughter from the Flintstones or something being played over this. And I already had that suspicion. And then you get to this scene where they're testing out the go-kart and they're just driving it around some neighborhood that's obviously a real place. So I started to get the impression like this, none of this is performed live. Yes, they absolutely use canned laughter in that. So they are zooming all around and or Herman's zooming all around and he's, you know, tearing up the little cul-de-sac in that part of the neighborhood. And then he, you know, they do multiple loops like it's a long little sequence. It's, it, you know, it, it to me, it was the funniest part of the episode. Um, and then he he zooms back into their yard and crashes through some trash cans and then into into something and ruins the go-kart so that was the cause for the fight of now grandpa's so mad he told him not to test this out because he wanted eddie to have a birthday present and they had spent weeks working on this in the garage days and nights there's no way his birthday's on saturday they're gonna have any more time to make him a new present. So they're screwed because Herman did this. And that's when Grandpa and Herman get into a fight. And it comes down to the technicalities. Herman's like, it's my house. I bought it. And Grandpa's like, no, I put down the down payment or whatever. So they come to understand we each own 50% of the house. Ipso facto, let's divide the house in half. So Herman busts out a bucket of white paint yeah. that is very clearly actual white paint because mm -hmm. it's getting all over his costume. Yeah. And he is painting the stairs that are carpeted. Yes. Full uh, commitment to this concept. <laughs> 
and they paint these lines down the center of all the different rooms and the house so that grandpa can have his half and Herman can have his. So now, do we get any gags in this? Because I don't remember if we got any gags in the monster or sorry, in the Addams family on this about the, you know, oh, the bathroom's on your side, the kitchen's on my side. Well, we get the newspaper gag. We get stuff with the newspaper in this and we get stuff with the phone, which basically consists of uh, grandpa getting a phone call and then, you know, asking Herman to hand him the phone. But then he cuts the wire with probably those same scissors you were talking about. The second appearance of the big Um, scissors. So, yeah, we get these little things that hint at the overall message, which is it is extremely impractical to divide things in half. It's not really a solution. Right. That's right. Because Lily hands grandpa the phone and the, the phone has been on Herman's side, but then grandpa gets it. So then Herman cuts it. And then we also get the television when they're sitting there on the couch reading the now torn in half paper. Grandpa decides to go and turn on the television, which is on his side, and Herman can see the television. So then they both start laughing at whatever's happening. And then Grandpa turns the television around so that Herman can only see the back of it. And I think, isn't that when Herman realizes that there's something on his side that Grandpa doesn't have? He has the organ. He plays the That's, pipe organ. He plays the pipe organ. You have your TV. I have my pipe organ, right? Equally entertaining. Uh, yeah. And so we get that same sort of message. And uh, ultimately, it's time to give Eddie his presence. Well, right? the, so the saddest thing about this is that, right, they're dealing with this house that, you know, the grandpa and Herman are fighting. And the mom and Marilyn are having to live in this and Eddie's having to live in this. And so Eddie comes down to go to school the next day. And he's like, oh, golly gee, I'm so excited about my present you know i know they've been working so hard even though they're having a fight now and you see on the mom's face she's just like uh and it's sad because it's like oh man that kid's not going to get a present because these two idiots are fighting so that's when she and Marilyn decide they have to do something about it and she divides the at dinner that night she divides the dining room table into like fourths or something so she and Marilyn are in one triangle and Herman is in one triangle and Grandpa's in another and Eddie's in another and they Herman sorry Marilyn the mom and Eddie have all the food in their spaces and Grandpa and Herman do not so they don't get to eat any food except for the olive and a saltine they both get an olive and a saltine because that's what's sitting down on their sides of the table or their two different sides of the table. So they eat, you know, the rack of ribs and all the other good stuff and the potatoes and uh, Herman and Grandpa don't get any of that because they're being punished. And so they, you know, Marilyn and Lily are like, ooh, we're going to get them now. They started to crumble. And then the next two scenes we see, well, Grandpa has a you know, early version of a microwave oven in his little lair. And um, and Herman's able to get the dragon that they keep in the basement to uh, flame broil some hot dogs for him on a stick. Exactly. So they were able to eat. So they weren't going to give up anytime soon. Yeah. And then do, what was it that made the mom just sort of break and threaten them and say, you get back out in that garage and make your grandson and your child a present? I don't know. Just the whole thing is unsustainable. But yeah, I don't know what that breaking point is. But when they do finally unveil the present, 
it doesn't go how I thought it would. So they gather everyone out, right? And they unveil that it's like a, a propeller plane for Eddie Munster. Right. So it is. it looks like a go-kart, but it's got a propeller on it. So it's kind of similar to what it was, but it has this other thing. And he sees it and he thinks it's like a little kid pedal toy made to look like a plane. Yeah. And Grandpa and Herman are like, no, 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 it's really an airplane. And then he's like, all right, whatever. He doesn't buy it. And they're like, go on, sit down and, you know, try. And he's like, big sigh. And he sits down. And then as he starts to pedal, it takes flight. And so then it's up in the air and it really is a plane. And Eddie's eyes are all big. And he's like, hey, everybody, look at me. And as that's happening, Grandpa and Herman are slowly backing out of the frame so they can get over to the next shot, which is them in front of the garage on their booby traps. And then the camera turns around and they're standing in front of the garage cheering. And then Grandpa falls in the trap door and Herman bends over and laughs. And that's when he gets looped through his pants and lifted up like we saw Lillian get lifted up earlier. Yeah, but I don't understand what happens here. How did they make this? Like, I thought the point was going to be like you were saying before, they were so embroiled in their own stupid fight that they made him a bad present or didn't make him any present. But instead, they made this magical flying car thing. Sure, like because this- Lily yelled at them and said, get to it. And they stayed up all night and they made a flying car, as you do. Okay. So I guess I didn't understand what we were supposed to take from this, just that they, because they stopped fighting, they were able to finally make this. I think you're trying to read into something that doesn't really have a lesson. (laughs) I guess you're right. And also, I just thought that Eddie's reaction was bizarre. Like, he is a little kid. Why was he so offended that they made him a go-kart? No, he didn't think it was a go-kart. It looks like a little kid wagon. And he named the type of toy that was a type of little kid toy. Like, think of like a big wheel. Like, you know, like a a big wheel kind of toy that little kids now use. So he's like nine, but they made him a toy that's for like a three-year-old. So he was kind of like, I don't really ride around on a little one of these little things anymore, which, you know, we would equate to a big wheel. And so he was disappointed and they were like, no, no, we, we promise it. It's not that it might look like that, but it's not that. And then it wasn't, and he was loving it. And so that was, you know, everybody was happy in the end, except for grandpa and Herman who got caught in their own booby traps. But they ultimately just sort of realized that the dividing the house thing was unsustainable and just Lily talked some sense into them and Well, I think Lily made them focus on not their fight, focus on the fact that there was a birthday coming up and that was more important because then in the after credits scene, we get Herman with a pail and scrub brush trying to scrub all the paint off the stairs that he had earlier painted. And grandpa comes over and makes some comment and he's like, and he grabs the bucket of paint that's right next to it and starts to repaint again. And Lily's like, don't you dare. So they didn't really resolve their fight. This is a tenuous alliance. Truce, exactly. Um, Okay, fair enough. Let's jump way ahead in time to something 
Maybe not better, but definitely different. Uh, Definitely different. So we're moving from 1966 to 1989. We are now alive. Oh, yeah. And I absolutely remember watching this in its first run, being super excited about it. We're talking, hey, dude. Hey, dude. So we're on Nickelodeon now for the first time ever, right? We talked about Saved by the Bell before, so that's... Similar territory, but now we're in Nickelodeon, right? Which obviously means just just a whole different feel than these network sitcoms. Right. right. They knew their audience was children. I mean, Saved by the Bell as well, because it was a Saturday morning cartoon, but different, right? Like, this is in the Nickelodeon time where they have Hey Dude, they have 15, which is like a soap opera for kids. This is before the um, like SNCC, where it was like, Are yeah. You Afraid of the Dark? They're experimenting and that kind of stuff. with, like, they want to compete with the networks for, uh, yeah, stuff for older kids. Right. You know, it started out as only. You can't do that on television and lots of cartoons, you know, and now they're saying, no, let's get 14, 15, 16 year olds to still watch this. To still watch this and have 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 something that's interesting to to watch. Like we definitely get a bit of eye candy with Ted and his um, shirtless towel scene. And yeah, and then we have the arguments. So, okay, so this episode is um, it's called Bunkmate Battles. So you've got Melody and Brad. Brad's a girl. In case you didn't watch the show, you have Melody and Brad and Ted and Danny. And these four teenagers are the staff at a dude ranch that is like a vacation place. So people can go to the Southwest and they can stay at this dude ranch and have like the city slickers exactly. type experience. And these are the the teenagers that staff that are the staff. Like uh, Brad is a equestrian. So she does a lot of the horse riding stuff and Melody's a lifeguard and they all have different jobs at the dude ranch. And um, so the whole series is just all about them being the staff at this dude ranch and the different funny characters as guests that sometimes come in. And then they have their boss who is kind of like Rick Moranis. And he's like an accountant turned dude ranch owner that is sort of fish out of water. He's their Mr. Belding. He's the old fuddy duddy that, you know, they're going to always be sort of, you know, scheming around and stuff. I have to say, I don't want to get bogged down on this, but we talked about in Family Matters how they didn't have enough to do with that little sister character. You look at the opening theme of this show and it's like, they just, they they were way ahead of themselves in terms of number of characters. This poor woman, Lucy, who is like the first face in the intro because her name comes first alphabetically she doesn't show up once in this episode she is mentioned uh and even that was probably like by contract or something they just between this extra uh, adult character lucy and this son of the owner character buddy and there's a dog who i think makes his way into the the opening credits they this is just definitely a case of you know not totally having your ducks in a row when you go to series and not totally thinking through, uh, you know, what the shape of the show is going to be because they did not have anything for some of these adult characters to do. Yes. 
and we get very little Mr. Ernst in this episode. I had forgotten completely uh, that Mr. Ernst's son mm -hmm. was even in the show. I remember from watching this, you know, when I was growing up, the four young teenager characters. Yeah. So the girls bunk together and the boys bunk together and they're both having their little fights about different things. Right. Now, these are the standard fights everyone has, right? So I love, we talked about in the earlier episodes how, you know, it's important in these half hour shows, you got to establish those conflicts right away. So the girls' conflict, which we learn about second, is your pretty standard melody, right? This is Christine Taylor. She's Marsha from the Brady Bunch movie, um, you know, radiant uh, in, in these in these uh, Hey Dude episodes. I yes, remember being like fully on board with her. Her her kind of first sort of thing, right? And then yeah. she went on to many things and she's in a lot of Ben Stiller's movies because they're married and yeah. Yes. And Brad is also a character on the show. And, and so, uh, <laughs> Melody and Brad are in conflict because Melody is loud and she wants to exercise and play her music and stuff. And Brad is quiet and she wants to read, right? And Simple enough. Simple enough. They're, they just have those roommate conflicts like Melody is messily looking for something and Brad has put the shoes that she was looking for in a drawer because she had left them on the floor and she was trying to nicely put them away. I don't know that we've ever had that argument here in our home. Nor have we necessarily had this argument because the boys' conflict is that age-old roommate issue where one of them believes Native Americans to be savages who, uh, you know, threatened the early American settlers with violence and uh, savagery. Basically, Ted is writing a history paper, even though he's at the or, dude ranch. Right. So he's writing a history speech, a little presentation he's going to give to the guests. Right. So he's going to give them a little bit of history about where they are. And one thing after another, he's talking about how, you know, oh, they had to, you know, the white settlers had to tame the savage Indians and all of these things. And Danny, who is his roommate, who also works at the dude ranch, is a Native American. By the way, we were like, holy moly, this is 1989 and they actually cast an actual Native American in this role. Yes. Now, it is unfortunate that he is a terrible actor, in my opinion. I have to say uh, that it is a bummer. The acting abilities on this show are all over the map. You know, I was cheeky about the Brad character. It's it's telling that none of these people went on to be Tom Hanks or anything like that. <laughs> but Christine Taylor and the guy that played Ted. Both, like David Lasseter or something yeah, like that? something like that. Uh, they both went on to to do stuff. He was in Blossom. She was in the Brady Bunch movie. They just, you know, they were working actors and familiar faces. And the girl that plays Brad and the guy that plays Danny are just duds. You know, they're just they're, lumps. They're dry, right? So I think with Brad, she her sort of like whole characterization is that she just yells when like her acting style is I'm yelling. I'm always just yelling, even though she's supposed to be the quiet one. She's a little weird, but she goes from like zero to like raging B in uh, three seconds. She's always mad. She's always she's always mad. That's her role. That's her role. And she just yells all the time. And then Danny is very like 
he's very happy-go-lucky. But with Danny, it's his speech pattern, right? Like the actor who plays Danny has that thing where he talks like this. And even in the middle of his line, he'll just like stop in halfway through a syllable to take a big breath so he has enough breath to finish the rest of the line. It, yeah. It's really, and we've watched multiple episodes of Hey Dude just for our own curiosity's sake, and it wasn't just this episode. <laughs> no, he is, yeah, he just doesn't really have much charisma, much energy. There just isn't any, like, spark with him. But anyway, their conflict is that Ted is extremely racist. Absolutely, and, and Danny's calling him out on it. Danny's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Yeah. You're going to write a presentation for the guests about how the white settlers had to tame the savage Indian? Hold on. Yeah. And and he's like, I bet you couldn't go a single week without using or eating or in some way engaging with something in your life that you have because these savages gave it to you. And so then we have the rest of the episode, every time we see them, Ted is being denied, you know, having barbecue or corn or, you know, wearing clothes, wearing jeans or all of these things, because a lot of it came from, or, you know, the idea for this led to that, that it started with a Native American tradition, even down to the dye in the towel scene where he's, you know, coming back from his shower and he only has a red towel wrapped around him. And Danny's like, sorry, man, you can't even wear that towel. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So they don't do the divide the room thing. They just have this ongoing thing where, like you said, Danny has challenged him to live his life without all of the discoveries and luxuries that are afforded to him because of the Native American discoveries. And uh, it basically turns out to be every single thing that he does or uses. Yes. Uh, and so, you know, that's an ongoing thing. And meanwhile, we have Brad and Melody. They're driving each other crazy. Melody has headphones for her music when she works out but that doesn't really matter because she has to count really loudly you know and one and two and three you know when she's doing her jumping jacks and stuff and so you know of all the times when this let's divide the room solution is introduced i feel like this is where it's the most idiotic because their conflict is primarily auditory in nature, right? Their biggest bone to pick with each other is about noise. So where does it get you to divide the room in half? Right. So which is exactly what they realize when they come up with or when Melody comes up with this plan, right? So Brad's like, that's it. We've got to figure something out. This is ridiculous. And Melody's like, oh, ho, ho. Oh, no. Because Brad has made a schedule. She's like, working out can happen at this time. Blasting music can happen at this time. And all the times she said that music can be blasting and working out can happen are the times where Melody is supposed to be working or having meals. So there's she's she basically is like so i don't get to you know like i don't go to work so that i can work out and i don't eat so that i can listen to my music that's not going to happen she balls up the schedule and throws it down on the ground and brad's like well what are we going to do and she was like well i have an idea and she takes this string and she 
clothesline. She strings it across the room, fastens it to the window, and then pulls a blanket across and immediately is like, I'm on my side, you're on your side, and turns on her boombox and starts doing very strange things with her stuffed animals as she's like pretending to dance with them. It was a yeah, no, was I wrote awkward. down that Melody's idea of unfettered fun is shaking a stuffed banana in the air. Yeah, that that was her pastime. I'm getting um, down. It's so loud. Well, it turns out that the plug for said boombox is on Brad's side of the room. So it gets unplugged. Yeah. Once again, just the impracticality of the divide the room system rears its ugly head. So then they all end up in the main lobby area. And this is the first time we get to see Mr. Ernst. Uh, Mr. Ernst is on the phone talking to a potential guest and he's telling, you know, singing the praises of the place. And he's like, oh, the staff, they're wonderful. And then we get these, you know, scenes where the staff comes in and they're screaming at each other. And Mr. Ernst is like, hey, guys, you know, we need to talk one at a time. Like, let's talk this out. And then in typical fashion, nobody really says anything. (laughs) Yeah. Mr. Ernst's role in the show was often to be to have to smooth things over with the guests. That's his whole point is that he's the one that that, you know, is going to look bad if things go wrong and you know all of the antics of the the kids who are the ones you want to watch you know reflect poorly on him and so he has to kind of be like he he sorry about that mr petterton right well and his whole thing is that he is a fish out of water right like he bought this ranch this was his like escape from the big city i leave my accountant job behind i'm gonna come and i'm gonna run this dude ranch but he has no idea what he's doing and that woman that you mentioned that is not we don't see in this episode her Her role is as the one who's worked there for a while to kind of be like, you're an idiot. Like, these are the things you do. And these kids have ostensibly worked there for, you know, summers before and years before. So they know what's going on. So everybody's trying to kind of like help out Mr. Ernst. But in this case, he's like, no, let's talk this out. Let's try to solve your problem. And so, yeah, they all come together in that scene. And then what? No, nothing comes out of it, right? They they decide, I mean, they're, they stay mad at each other. Um, Melody and Brad both don't really say anything. They just kind of yell about what their problem is. And then Danny and Ted explain what's going on. And the way they explain it is Danny is currently winning a bet that he made against me. And that's, you know, fine, but he doesn't have to gloat about it. And Danny's like, if you were winning a bet against Ted, wouldn't you be gloating about it? Okay. So I was confused about this. So it was a bet with actual stakes because I wasn't sure. It seemed to me like just this sort of general challenge. Like I wasn't clear on at what point does this ever end? Or is this just like Ted has to live like this now? No, he said, I bet you can't go a week. And okay, he, a week. A week, right. So I bet you can't go a week. So, it, you know, it's got that timeline. It didn't have, uh, you know, stakes to the bet. Okay. I don't know if there were stakes They didn't tell us. But it is funny the way it sort of escalates, you know, because it gets to the point as Ted gets more and more 
frustrated by it. Danny gets more and more, he sort of like expands the breadth of what he's going to consider like the Native American contributions to the point where he's going like, well, the very foundations of our government were inspired by the tribal provincial, you know, structures of the Native Americans. And he's going on and on to the point where it's like just the process of breathing air is somehow in debt to the Native Americans. And so, yeah, it's like he's just sort of Ted is is spinning out of control. Yeah, Ted, yeah Ted can't do anything like. He just, there's not, like, he hasn't eaten in days. He's, he's completely out of his sorts, out of sorts. He's not able to wear his clothes and, you know, and all this stuff. And, and Danny is, is gleeful about it. He's not, you know, he's not rubbing it in, but he's, he's laughing. Like, he's having a good time with it. And it, for good reason, because his, you know, this was like his way of being like, hey, man, check your racism in a very sort of like friendly kind of ha ha, you're going to learn your lesson way. Anyway, the this part of the episode made me think that this episode would be one of the things that Ron DeSantis does not allow in Florida because it would be indoctrinating children with their woke mentality. Oh, how those liberals like to do that in 1989 on Nickelodeon. We were so indoctrinated. Yeah. It's also interesting, uh, an interesting sign of the times that the word Native American is never really said in this. They still, no matter how sort of progressive minded you are, you still use the term American Indian, which was kind of the case in most circles in 1989. Yeah, that's true. They they did. They had they said Indian and then they said, they did they never say Native American? Maybe once or twice, but I feel like primarily they would use the term Indian. Just yeah, the way I remember did. going to the Museum of the American Indian just, you know, that change in nomenclature hadn't really happened yet, at right. least in the mainstream. Yeah, absolutely. And the way that all comes to comes to the end, right, is Ted realizes that he should think again about the, you know, the way his presentation is going or the subject of his presentation. And he adds in all these things that he's learned and sort of turns the presentation on its head about the contributions of the Native American to civilization as we know it today and how so many of those things got their start in the different tribes and how they've become a part of our everyday lives just through living on the same land. Yeah, and yet he still manages to engage in the same cultural appropriation because he's standing there explaining all this to Mr. Ernst as though it's his own knowledge that he has because of his own erudition. And right. Then, and Mr. Ernst is like, man, I didn't learn this in school. Where did you read this? Where yeah. did you hear this? Yeah. He's like, well, you know, they don't always teach you this in school. You got to really be kind of an expert like me. And then Danny sort of wordlessly strides up beside him. He has this whole little thing going on in this scene where he doesn't talk. Uh, he just kind of nods along as Ted goes like, Oh, I see a, I see a licking vanilla ice cream there. And he nods. Uh huh. And Ted's like, yeah, you know, I really would like some vanilla ice cream, but I bet it was probably invented by the, by the Native Americans, huh? And he's like, yeah, uh huh. And all I can say is that the scene ends with Ted licking his ice cream. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't consider myself a germaphobe or, you know, particularly uptight about stuff like that, but I would not lick another man's ice cream cone. I guess it's as simple as that. And yeah, we're supposed to understand that Danny is like 
showing him mercy or sort of saying like, all right, buddy, I'm going to let you off the hook. I thought maybe he was going to go get him his own ice cream cone or something, not just hand him his to lick. Well, okay. So the way he lets him off the hook, Ted's like, so, you know, let me guess the, you know, the Indians also discovered vanilla and Danny's like, yep, yes, they did. And then Ted's like, well, you know, I'm really hungry. And, uh, and then, and Danny kind of is, you know, giving him side eye and he says to Mr. Ernst, Ted says to Mr. Ernst, you know, I didn't, I didn't know all of this. I didn't research all of this. You know, Danny, this was really Danny's idea. And then Danny's like, all right, and gives him the ice cream. And then he goes to lick it and it falls off. (laughs) It falls off. So Ted is fully humbled at this point. And our other storyline basically ends with a case of absence makes the heart grow fonder, right? They basically decide we drive each other crazy, but it's not as fun bopping around the room if you're not there getting annoyed, you know, and uh, they just kind of make up. Yeah, they kind of, they they make up because they both, you know, she, uh, Brad went to sleep in the lodge, which I guess is like where the guests stay or the main kind of area. So she was like trying to sleep on a couch or something. And Christine Taylor, Melody kept the room and she was, she played her music loud, but it wasn't the same when she didn't have her roommate to annoy. And she tried to do a workout and it, she was like straining her throat because she was yelling as loud as she could. And she was like, yeah, this isn't as fun when there's not, I'm not like bothering somebody, which is kind of a dick thing to say. But so she was like, all right, well, I miss you. And then Brad comes back and she was like, yeah, I missed you too. You know, it was, it's nice to kind of have some noise around, even if that noise is annoying. So let's just try to work harder at being good friends. So similar sentiment to the Adams family episode where you just kind of realize, you know, your your connections are more important than your differences. We don't get as much of the, you know, sort of wacky impracticalities of dividing the room because that's not as big of a part of the story in this one. Like I said, we get the complete ineffectiveness of it because their problems have to do with making noise. But yeah, at the end of the day, uh, it's really about you got to make compromises and, you know, accept your differences and get along with your your roomies. Get along with your roomies. So we had the different types of um, room slash house divisions. We had some sort of, you know, string and uh, that was like a white line. We had a sort of chalk white line. Yeah. We had a painted paint like full on paint white line and then we had a blanket curtain. Yeah. Those were our our ways. There are a couple of honorable mentions. Mm-hmm. So there's what like we said when we were doing some research for this, there were there are other shows that have the same trope obviously, but oftentimes it's not the center plot line. So the um, first episode, the pilot episode of Full House, Stephanie and DJ have a, a storyline like this where they divide their room in half. But that being the pilot episode, we figured we'd probably want to talk about it when we talk about pilots. Yeah, there's just a lot going on in there. We already covered Full House uh, a few episodes ago. And the Brady Bunch does this as well. Uh, what I find interesting is that this was a case where it was a struggle to find anything past 1980 something. Yeah. The Um, only thing, the only ones that do this later on are kids shows. This is a retired trope in terms of like grown up television. Yeah. And I was thinking about how in contrast to when we were talking last time about the class reunions and how we were like, 
This is a great trope because it's a real thing that happens in life and people have to deal with it and it brings up all kinds of feelings. This is now we're now we're back in the territory of delivering babies and limousines and stuff where it's like this is something that happens on TV. Maybe it is a representation of something that happens in real life. Like we were saying, we do absolutely deal with issues of, you know, people having different lifestyles and people being messy and clean or noisy and quiet and all that. But this idea of trying to physically divide your space, at best, it's a metaphorical thing you can connect to, right? Right. And I would say if we're going to like extend this trope into what it could become, we got to go back to the community episode of the pillow fort versus the blanket fort that becomes like it ends up having at least one, if not two, you know, episode arc of the the camps. And there's a full war mm-hmm. between the two sides because Abed and Troy get into a fight and decide to decide to divide the campus in half because one wants to do a blanket fort and one wants to do a pillow fort. And you can't add blankets to a pillow fort and you can't add pillows to a blanket fort because it ruins the whole aesthetic. Sure. And it's just so funny how even though this has mostly gone away because it's so silly and sort of hackneyed at this point, it's like there was enough of them early on to establish this in all of our minds. Like I know when we first started talking about this podcast, that's just one that jumps out, you know, right there with the getting bopped on the head and forgetting who you are. Dividing the line with masking tape or painting a line down the middle is just such a typical sitcom-y thing because of all of these that came up in the 60s and 70s. And then it's like, yeah, we all kind of woke up to it and stopped doing it. For good reason, because there is not like what we learned from this is that there's not really a lot of lessons to be learned. Yeah, the lesson to be learned is that, you know, sometimes the solutions that might seem easy in a relationship aren't and you have to learn to live with each other and not just be like oh what if we cut the room in half you know so what you're saying is you're not going to draw a line down the center of our bedroom so that my mess stays on the one side so far that hasn't been necessary (laughs) (laughs) if there if there are intrusions i can't say so what are we talking about next week Next week, we are starting our long-term arc where we're going to once every 10 episodes look at the five acts of a will-they-won't-they relationship. So we will be watching classic Cheers for Sam and Diane. We'll be watching Friends for Ross and Rachel. We'll be watching The Office for Jim and Pam, and we'll be watching New Girl for Nick and Jess. We're going to start with the pilot of each of these episodes, which is for the most part where our characters meet each other or re-meet each other. In the case of The Office, it's where the characters, we are meeting them. They've already known each other for a little bit. So we'll be watching the pilots, which is our first taste of the will they, won't they. We're calling this the meet cute, even though it's not exactly a meet cute for everyone. Yeah. And like you said, this is going to be a long-term relationship. We're going to figure out how to track each of these stories over the course of 
five key story points. We're going to check back in them on episode 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, and it's going to be quite the endeavor. And until then, we will declare this phase of the sitcom study concluded. Thank you for listening to The Sitcom Study. Tell us what you think or share your own TV tropes and topic ideas by sending a self-addressed stamped email to sitcomstudypodcast at gmail.com or find us on Facebook or Instagram. And if you like the show, consider leaving a rating or review on your podcast app. It helps us boost those precious Nielsen ratings. The Sitcom Study is recorded in front of a live studio dog. (laughs) 